All right, Hebrews chapter 1 is where we're going to be beginning. And don't worry, we won't get through the entire chapter today. We're just going to look at these first four verses. And as you guys make your way in the Bibles that are either located in front of you or the one you brought or that little device in your hand, uh, I'm going to just give you a brief overview on top of what we just listened to. The time frame that this letter was written, uh, we're not completely sure of, but it's believed to be early 60s AD. We know for certain that it wasn't after the destruction of the temple in Rome because the temple is actually, or by Rome, because the temple is actually referred to in this book. And we know that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome in 70 AD. So the letter had to take place sometime prior to that. Uh, The audience, as the video described, are Messianic Jews. These are people who have converted from Judaism uh, to the Jewish, uh, to the Christian faith, excuse me. And this group of people would have been dispersed out of uh, Jerusalem. They would have started the faith there in Acts chapter 2. You remember uh, Peter and the other disciples there on the day of Pentecost, they received the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Peter is empowered to go out and preach the word. Some 3,000 people come to know Christ that day. And so the church starts off there. But as the church progresses, and as the word of the Lord said, look, I want you to take this power and go be witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, what they elected to do was stay put in Jerusalem. It was really nice and cozy right there. And so they were just hanging out until great persecution happens. In Acts chapter 8, we see none other than Saul of Tarsus, who would later become the Apostle Paul, uh, brings about a tremendous wave of persecution. And from there, the church is dispersed. They're sent all throughout the known world, the Roman Empire. And so this letter goes out to that audience of uh, Jewish believers that are dispersed throughout the known world. And the issue that's really at hand is one of tradition and legalism. That they've begun to fall back into this idea of the old covenant. That they should go back to the old ways of doing things. Their traditions. That surely they can do something in order to reach God. And so they turned their back on Christ and instead turned their way towards traditions. Now this has many different issues. Not the least of which is Jesus at the Last Supper passing out the elements. He says, I give to you the new covenant. He's giving them a new covenant based upon his sacrifice and his blood. And so this new covenant wouldn't have just destroyed the old covenant, but it was actually the fulfillment of the old covenant. He had fulfilled everything spoken of him in the old covenant. And so he was now giving them a new direction, a better direction where folks can come to him, come boldly to the throne of grace and have access to the Father. And so a beautiful promise, but but you see they were layering in legalism and tradition on top of it. And and here's the thing, what legalism always does is it makes it more difficult for people to come to Christ. It makes it more difficult for people to come to that throne of grace. It adds burdens on people that they weren't meant to bear. We, we can't do it on our own, else we wouldn't need Christ to intercede on our behalf. And so this legalism begins to take root in their life. And it has a further implication. It, it says this, that here's Jesus and the perfect sacrifice, who by his own words said, it is finished in John 19. To telestai was the word he used. And what we're saying when we go back to tradition and back to me doing it on my own, if I could just work hard enough, uh, what we're saying is it's not finished. 
that I must have some part to play. I, I surely can work hard enough, can do enough to gain access to heaven. Meaning that now my work is dependent upon my salvation. When what Christ said is, I took care of all that for you and on your behalf. It's very simple. And so the theme of the book, which you're going to hear throughout our study and our time together, hopefully when someone comes up to you and asks, what are you studying? You say Hebrews, and they say, what is that all about? You can say these three simple words, Jesus is better. Here's the theme of the whole book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Better than what? You name it. Whatever you've got, whatever you can come up with, he is better than that. So anything that we attempt to put before him, a a relationship, a career, a a, a bank account, a a person, a place, a thing, anything we can see or touch or taste that we try to put ahead of him, it's bound to disappoint or to disappear. But Jesus is better than all those things. That's the ultimate point that's going to be driven home in our time in Hebrews. He is superior to all these things. Now, the big question mark with the book of Hebrews is, who is the author? Uh, Many believe that it's the Apostle Paul. Uh, Others believe the the language that he uses is even more complicated Greek than what Paul used. So this this couldn't be Paul's writings. They've attributed it to Barnabas or even to Apollos, a great uh, theologian from Alexandria. He was intellectual and a great orator. So surely this is Apollos or maybe even Dr. Luke. So all these things have been debated. Tremendous amounts of time have been spent on who is the author of Hebrews. But I would submit to you that we're going to find out right here in chapter 1, verse 1. You're going to know the answer. Finally, chapter 1, verse 1 says, God. There you have it. (laughs) If you want to know who the author is, just like other letters written by Paul or by uh, others uh, that wrote epistles, they would always list out their names. We just went through Thessalonians, right? Paul would say, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were the authors. But here we see God listed first. And I would submit to you that this letter, actually our entire scripture we hold in our hands, was all authored by God. There were 40-some physical authors, but the reality is the Holy Spirit had a part in authoring this book we hold from Genesis all the way to Revelation. That scarlet thread that runs from the left to the right. This is God's autobiography. This is our way, our ability to be able to see and understand and connect with the character of God through his love letter. Not an instruction manual we hold in our hands, but instead a love letter from God to us. Who in verse 1, at various times and in various ways, spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, and has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. In the past, throughout human history, God has spoken in a multitude of ways, is what we read here in verse 1. King David in Psalm 19 would say this in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. I mean, you can just look to the sky and the stars and go, wow, there must be a God. Look at how amazing his firmament, his handiwork, it's beautiful. Paul would pick up on this theme in Romans chapter 1 as he was speaking there to a group of uh, atheists and, and people with all kinds of wild beliefs about uh, paganism. He says in Romans chapter 1, 
Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What Paul says is, look around. Take a look at creation. Look at the complexity that is all around us and tell me there's not a designer. Tell me there's not a creator. His attributes, his power are clearly seen all around us. And yet none of these things tell the complete story. This reminds me of the ancient Indian proverb about the five blind men and the elephant. That they bring out this elephant and they've got these five blind men and they ask the blind men to describe this creature that is before them. And the first blind man comes out and he grabs a hold of the trunk and he says, well, surely this is a mighty python, a giant snake that I have in my hands. And the next blind man comes out and he says, no, no, as he grabs a hold of one of the legs and says, this is a powerful tree trunk. I mean, look at its width and its power. And the third blind man grabs a hold of the tail and says, I believe you're both wrong. This must be a fly swatter. He's swinging it around. The fourth blind man grabs a hold of one of the ears and says, no, this is a a fan to cool us off in the hot Indian summer. And so he's waving it around. And the fifth blind man says, you're all wrong. As he grabs a hold of one of the tusks and he says, this is a tremendous spear made for battle. You see, each one of those men were describing a a little piece, a little part, but they didn't understand the entire story. They only understood their little part. And this is what the writer is saying, is here we have now the final story, the complete view, the thing that we had missed throughout because we could only see in part. We didn't understand the entire story. But in these final days, God has sent His Son the full representation, the final word for all humanity to be able to see God, Him represented to us through Jesus. Now this would cause some to ask, why wouldn't He just start with that in the first place? I mean, why wouldn't He just start right off the bat? Like, here you go, you're flawed, you need a Savior, here's Jesus. Wouldn't that be so much easier? And I believe, in large part, God didn't do that because He knew our own prideful state. He knew how proud we were, that if he would have given us Jesus right off the bat, we would have said, look, you didn't need to do that. You didn't need to give us your son. He didn't need to come down for us. Why don't you just let us realize who you are from the stars in the sky? Your heavens, they declare your majesty. We can tell all about you from that. Or even better, from creation. I mean, look how intricate the design. You'd be a fool to not realize there's a God. That's ridiculous. You don't need to send Jesus. Or even better, send your prophets. I mean, we would believe a great man of God who could call down fire or raise the dead. Surely that would do the trick. Here's the deal. Lord, we'll make it easy for you. Just give us some rules. Don't give us a whole bunch of rules. I mean, we can't follow that. Boil it down to... Let's say 10. Give us the top 10 list of things you want us to adhere to and we'll believe. And the reality is, no, we wouldn't. We wouldn't believe, nor could we follow the rules. This is what God has to allow us to get to even as we sit here today. I don't know about you, but until I finally work through my pride 
my sense of feeling like I can do it on my own. Surely I've got this, God. But until I finally ended up in a spot where I was on my knees saying, Lord, I cannot do it. That I finally turn over and say, I need Jesus. I need a Savior. I need someone to step in on my behalf because I cannot do it on my own. And all of humanity had to get to that point. Each one of us have to get to that point individually. It's not good enough for our families to pass it down for generations. It's an individual decision to say, I need Jesus. As we continue, we're going to look at seven different attributes then that apply to Jesus. In verse 2, has in these last days spoken to us through his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Jesus is the inheritor of all things. The Father has willed it to him. He has given all things over to Jesus. And with that said, we are now his inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. The Apostle Paul would write this to the church in Ephesus. He says in verse 11, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Here's the beautiful part about Jesus being the inheritor. He has now made us inheritors with Him. What a tremendous gift that because of His great inheritance, He's actually allowed us to partake, us to be a part of this. It's a tremendous promise. And He did it all because it was His love that actually nailed him to the cross. As Jesus was explaining this through a parable in Matthew chapter 13, this is his exact words, speaking of himself. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. For the joy that was you and I. This is why he did it. This is why he gave up his life. And he didn't just purchase us and that's it. He bought the whole doggone world. He gave up everything, his entire life, and purchased us. We're that valuable, that important to him. Jesus is the inheritor of all things. Continuing there in verse 2. Who in these last days has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir to all things, through whom he has also made the worlds. Jesus was not only the inheritor, he was the creator. Now that'll cause a few of you to stop and go, wait a minute, I thought that was God. Genesis 1.1 says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then we turn to John chapter 1, verse 1, where John states, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In the beginning was God, and in the beginning was the Word. They coexisted. They were there together because they were one, along with the Holy Spirit, which is mentioned in verse 2 of Genesis Right off the bat, three in one, all together. And this is mind-blowing to try to understand the triune Godhead, how they can be individual and yet compound all at the same time. 
One of my favorite places in Scripture to go that refers to this, that's repeated over and over again by the Jewish people, it's known as the great Shema. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's called the Shema because that's the first word in Hebrew. Hear, O Israel. It means Shema Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That should sound familiar. Because when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He goes back to the great Shema. And he said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But it starts by him saying, hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael, uh, Elohim, excuse me, Yahweh, Elohim, Yahweh, Echad is the word in Hebrew. It means compound unity. It's translated in our English as one, but it means similar to an egg, that they are compound and yet they are unified together. An egg, you know, has three parts, the shell, the yolk, the white. Some parts taste better than others, but all together, they are still called, referred to as an egg. They have akad, they are the same, and yet they have individual attributes. One of the best ways I've heard uh, this explained about creation is it was by the Father through the Son powered by the Holy Spirit. This is how creation came to be. So Jesus is the creator. Continuing the next attribute in verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory, he is also the radiator. Important to note about Jesus, he's not the reflector. He's not merely reflecting the light coming from the Father. He is the radiator himself. The moon reflects beautifully and brilliantly, and yet it has no power of its own. It is dark by itself. That's not Jesus. Heaven doesn't need the sun to shine in the sky, S-U-N, because this S-O-N is present. He actually is the manifestation of light. It reflects, it comes out of him, not reflects, it radiates out of him. John, if you would have stayed there, if I hadn't taken you back to Hebrews, you could have stayed in John chapter 1. Verse 4 says, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He was, he is light, the manifestation of light. And the darkness cannot comprehend it. Some translations say the darkness could not extinguish it. I love that translation. That the darkness couldn't do away with the light. It had no power against the light of Jesus. So Jesus is the radiator. Continuing in verse 3. Who being the express, excuse me, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, he is also the representer. He is the literal translation of God. And this phrase, the expressed image, it was similar to them taking a piece of metal and then stamping the image of Caesar on that piece of metal. His image was expressed right there exactly onto that coin. The same with King Jesus as, his, as the image of God was put into a human. We can see, we can learn, we can understand about God through the Son. He is the representer of God. And for centuries upon centuries, this question has been asked, why can't we just see God? If we could just see God, then we would believe. If we could just know God. Even Moses said, I want to see your glory. But no one has seen the Father except those who have seen the Son, is what Jesus would go on to explain. The disciples had the same question for Jesus who in John chapter 14 
was explaining in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said, thankfully Philip was brave enough to ask the question we're all asking, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Lord, just show us God, and we'll be good. We'll believe if you could just show us God right now. That seems easy enough. And listen to Jesus' response. Verse 9, and Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? What Jesus says is, if you have witnessed me, if you have seen me, you are seeing the Father. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, is what John 1.14 says. The very Word of God, the same Word that created all things, has actually been translated, given a, a, a physical body, and then that body has been written down for us. He is the Word of God. Here in the flesh, we can see Him, we can understand Him as He's represented by His Word, through His Word. And so when we want to see and know God, here we have it in our hands. Isn't that beautiful? What a promise. It's why we spend so much time going through the Word of God carefully as we can to, to see and understand more about His character. Jesus is the representation of God. As we continue in chapter 1, verse 3, who being the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the Word of His power, Upholding all things by the word of his power, Jesus is the sustainer of all things. He's holding all things together by the very word of his power. Here's what the Apostle Paul would say in Colossians chapter 1 verse 17. I lost Colossians. Sorry, Paul. Colossians chapter 1 17, he says this, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. In some of your translations, it might say, in him all things are held together. Now, I'm a science geek, which I've told several of you before. And, and one of the things that I love and when bring science into this scripture is that the atomic structure, if you've ever looked at the structure of an atom, hundreds of years ago, we finally understood what all material, what all matter was made out of. And the atomic structure is a nucleus, which is a protons tightly packed. Also included in that nucleus are neutrally charged neutrons. And on the outside of this nucleus, then circling all around are negatively charged electrons. And that's what makes up all atomic structure everywhere we can see and yet what you guys know because you've experienced likely a high school science class if you've ever played around with magnets what you know is if you take a positively charged magnet and you hold it up to a positively charged magnet what happens they they repel and if you flip that and you take a negative charge to a positive they actually attract they they stick together so this causes scientists a huge issue because as you look at the atomic structure, you've got positively packed protons all together inside a nucleus. How is that possible that they are not exploding, firing apart? How is all the universe, everything material, everything we see and touch and taste, does it not blow apart? Or with these electrons circling all around, how do they not charge their way into the middle of that nucleus, destroying themselves? 
what they would go on to discover is that inside this atomic structure is something known as nuclear glue. They, they didn't know what to call it, and so scientists just called it the strong force. It holds protons together. It actually overcomes the force of magnetism, their desire to pull apart. And I would submit to you what has taken a scientist thousands of years to figure out is none other than Jesus Christ. Paul writing about it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. By him all things consist. All things are held together. And without him, what happens is implosion, explosion. It all goes flying apart. And for those of you that are like, thank you for the science lesson. Uh, here's the practical application. The same is true for our lives. That without him, all things fall apart. Every relationship, everything we try to hold near and dear, and we try to, under our own power, what happens is one of those pesky electrons comes flying in there and it all gets blown apart. We must have the, the glue, the sustainer of King Jesus in order to hold all things together first and foremost. Jesus is the one. Continuing there in verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he is also the purifier. I think it's important to note that he by himself did that. That there was no part that we had to play in this. He made the decision. He willingly, because of his love for us, put himself on the cross, sacrificing himself to atone for our sins. The very thing that we couldn't do for ourselves, he did on our behalf. And he continues to purge and purify. And no sacrificial system could possibly do this. That over and over again for the Jewish people, they would have to sacrifice. Just last week, I think it was, it might have been the week before, they celebrated Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That in Old Testament times, it was the one day of the year the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, the propitiation, the payment that turns away wrath would happen right then on that day to atone for the sins of the people. But the thing is, they had to do it over and over and over again. And the reason is because we sin over and over and over again. We fumble and we fail. John chapter 1 verse 9. First John chapter 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, He, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He has cleansed me of my sins. And He is cleansing me of my sins perpetually, continually. Thank God that He's doing that on our behalf. And so He alone is the purifier. Finally, in the end of verse 3, who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The seventh attribute of King Jesus is he is ruler. Seated at the right hand of the Father on high. His position is important for us to note because the position of sitting down at the right hand of the Father, it denotes authority and majesty and what I love the most, completeness. A completion of the work. He can sit because his work is complete. I get so excited 
in my house whenever I get home and Angela will say, hey, I'm about done adulting today. I am done being adult. And I get so excited because you know what that means? I get to sit down at the right hand of the queen like, yes, finally, we get to sit down. Send the kids to bed. Let's go sit down, right? Because the work is complete. But here is the position of Jesus for all of eternity seated at the right hand of the Father because his work is complete. But that would cause us, at least me, to ask, but what about me, Lord? I'm still in the midst of a battle here. I'm still in the midst of a situation that it doesn't feel completed. It feels like I'm very much in the middle of this thing that I'm going through right now. What about me? What, what does this position say? What are you doing right now on my behalf today? Romans chapter 8, verse 34. As Paul is describing Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, at the end of that verse, he says in verse 34, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. What is he doing right now at the right hand of the Father on our behalf? He is praying for us. He is interceding on our behalf, what we couldn't do for ourselves. He is praying. The God of the universe, the ruler of all things, is actually praying for us. What does that mean for us in the middle of this battle? Paul would go on to say in chapter 8, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I persuade you that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, period. As he prays for us on our behalf, Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. What a wonderful promise. As we're in the middle of a physical, emotional, mental battle happening, we've got Jesus, the ruler of all things, praying on our behalf. Verse 4. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, as we watch the video, the importance here in angels, at least for these Jewish believers, was that the angels, they believed in Deuteronomy 33, actually delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so as Jesus is better than the angels, higher than the angels, what they're saying is he is better than the law. He is better above, superior to even the law, which you're thinking about turning back to. And it's not even close. The, the story is so far above, it's not even close. And yet, for us right now today, the, the tendency we have is to put people above him. That so quickly, we have a, a, a propensity to turn and put situations and activities and things above him. We elevate things above Jesus. And it should not be so. First Timothy Chapter 3, verse 16, what Timothy said, what Paul says to Timothy is that without great controversy, excuse me, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. So much better is he than 
any of these things. He is far superior and he is our atonement. And this is a tremendous mystery that any of us in here could actually be godly. Isn't that amazing? Thinking of the things we've been through, that he could turn us, change us from the inside out because of the price paid by Jesus. And so as we head down the home stretch, here's the question of the day. How big do you make him in your life? I was thinking through this this week that there were people and, and role models and dreams that I was so quick to put above Jesus. So quick to put above him. And yet the older I get, the smaller and smaller those things have become. One of my all-time favorites since this is Sunday morning was Barry Sanders. I love me some Barry Sanders. I mean, he was tremendous. Getting the chance to watch him and the way he would juke and jive and take off for a touchdown. I mean, he, he had the longest run from scrimmage in the history of the NFL. It was amazing to see him go through a line of scrimmage and break away. And yet the heartbreak when at eight years in the league, he hung it up. I was torn up as a kid. I was even more heartbroken to realize that dude was only 5'8". I mean, he wasn't even that big. He wasn't even that big, you see. And the older I get, the more these things that I thought were so important become minimized. They get reduced. And at the same time, the longer I go in this relationship with Christ, the bigger and bigger and bigger he becomes. He becomes so much bigger than every storm, every lesson, every situation, every relationship that I try to get out of the whack. He reorients those things and he becomes so much bigger. And the reason is because Jesus is so much better. So Father, we thank you and we praise you for the intro into this beautiful book to the Hebrews. Thank you for how it speaks to us right here and right now. Father, I for one am sorry for all the ways that I managed to get other things completely out of whack, completely out of line, and then I'm amazed that they fall apart. Thank you for being bigger. Thank you for being patient. <laughs> Thank you for being better than all these things and never no, not never, one time letting me down. Father, I pray that that would be the case for everyone in here this morning, that you would be bigger and better in each of our lives. What a wonderful promise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.